Good morning, church. How are you guys? Man, I was just thinking, um, sitting uh, there with uh, Brooke, my wife, and uh, just, uh, just declaring this reality, all hail King Jesus. Like, and I'm just thinking about the joy that it is to gather before your king, the one who is a good king, uh, a righteous king, a, a saving king. Uh, and, and just to say, hail, hail to you. Like, you're awesome. You're awesome. And then I had this thought, like we are gathered up here today together in this room to stand before our King and, and, and just hail to him, right? And to remind each other of this King that we look to, this King who has rescued us. And then I, I was thinking, for 24 hours as the earth rotates and the sun keeps rising, in hundreds, perhaps thousands of languages, in these 24 hours, we stand not alone in this building with each other, but among hundreds of thousands, no millions of people in our generation alone who on this day will stand in their own places and their own languages and with us on this day say, hail, hail King Jesus. And I was just like, we're part of something so awesome. I mean, isn't that incredible? That we are called by the scriptures to gather, how often? Regularly to come and, 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 and declare to our King, hail King Jesus, for you are good. <laughs> we are um, uh, journeying through this letter that Peter has written uh, it's the second letter that he's written, hence the name Second Peter. Um, and he's writing this letter in a historical context that uh, is a fascinating time in history for us to now be encountering in our journey through Scripture. As many of you know, we started in Genesis uh, like 17 years ago, and we've been tracking along through the historical chronolo chronological unfolding of Scripture. And where we are historically now is in a season where the authors writing the letters we're studying Many of them are in their last days, weeks, months, or year. And, and this is the last word they have. This isn't the only letter we're going to experience that with. Multiple of the letters we will study over the next couple of months and years will be the last word from that author. And so there is a special nature to the season we're in historically and, the, and, the, and the, the, the letters we're getting to study because there is a certain sense of both an urgency, but, but also a, a clarity of what matters. We ought to say what we're about to hear. Peter must have thought this, if he only had one last word to say, this would be what he says. And so what, a, what an incredible experience it is for us to have access by God's sovereign spirit who has put together his powerful and supernatural word, access to these last words that are being written. And so as we entered this letter, we watched uh, as the letter unfolded, Peter beginning to say, here it is, here's what matters, here's what's important. And then we've gotten to a part in the letter where Peter is referencing three stories, three events, three things that occurred uh, in the Old Testament in ancient times. And he's referencing them with a particular purpose to demonstrate to the churches he's writing to and to us the beauty of what it means to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to trust him and to follow him. And that that is life 
and the, the, the tragedy, the danger, the horror it is to take our eyes off Jesus and to do it our way and not to trust him for that is death. And, and he's in the process of unfolding that. And these three stories that we've encountered, uh, they are supposed to be a quick glimpse, a Passover, an illustration, nothing more. And yet we have chosen in our journey through 2 Peter to take three full weeks, one for each story, so that we can unpack each story and go back and see what it is and do some digging into it. And ordinarily, we would not do that because that is not the intent of these three stories in this setting. The intent of these three stories is a quick illustration by Peter to make a totally different point. So why are we then taking such meticulous time to study each story? Because in Peter's time, when these stories were told or referenced rather, the people hearing these stories would have understood realities and things of these stories that in our cultural context and in the Western mindset of scripture, we have missed and therefore have a great misunderstanding often of these stories, therefore a misunderstanding of the character and nature of God. Therefore, even in hearing these stories as illustrations, we may not be able to fully grasp why these particular three stories are such a perfect placement for the point Peter is trying to make. You with me so far? The danger that we face when we choose to do something like this, when we're studying scripture and hone into a singular verse or a singular story within a letter and we're dealing with it and we're digging into it is that we could, if we're not careful, forget the context we're in and get all enamored by the actual story itself and be like, oh, that's super interesting and miss the reason it's there. And I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to dig into something that's going to have some interest and some, and, and, and some newness and actually become about the story instead of about the context. So just as a reminder, as we enter the second of the three stories today, just as a reminder, here is the context. Peter started out in this letter uh, when he said, as I'm writing this letter, what is it that I want to say to you? And he said, here are the virtues that are God's way. The, the external expressions that demonstrate that you are trusting God and that you're walking with him. Live in those things. Live in godliness. Live in the things of God. Follow God. Trust God. Keep your eyes fixed on God. Do not forget God. Do not forget who you are. That was where kind of Peter launched out. And, and what did he specifically say about these things? Here is the context of this letter as it stands right now in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. For if these qualities, these outward expressions of an inward godliness are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he or she is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So Peter is establishing this sort of big picture truth we have to grab a hold of that says this. If you or I, as people who know Jesus and are filled by the Holy Spirit, forget who we are in Christ and forget who he is and start living in a way that does not trust his way and does not trust him and we do it our way, we are what? We are so nearsighted that we are blind. 
And what he's going to do now is he's going to begin this journey from here, as he's done in the letter, to say, remember that as we choose to follow God's way, the right way, or our way, the wrong way, it's not about right or wrong. It's about life and death. That's a very, very different thing, isn't it? It's one thing to say, I want to make sure I do what's right because then God won't be mad and then things will go well for me. It's a whole nother thing is I want to make sure I do things that are life and not death. And what Peter's going to demonstrate to us and has been demonstrating to us is that at the end of the day, this isn't about right and wrong. This is about life and death. And when you choose God and you choose God's way, you are choosing life. And when you choose your way and you choose to oppose God and not trust him, you are choosing death. That's what he's trying to offer to us so that we come awake from this little thing of right and wrong and we move to, whoa, life and death. Do I want to be a person who brings more life to myself, to others and to the world or a person that brings more death? There's your your choice. And the way we know which one we're doing is by choosing to trust God in his way or choosing to trust ourselves and our way. That's the context we're in here. And so Peter then writes to to do this, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I, Peter, am going to make sure I spend the rest of my life, every breath I have, doing what? Reminding you all of who Jesus is, who you are in Christ, and to trust him. Isn't that awesome that Peter's saying to us, since trusting Jesus and following his way is life and freedom and trusting yourself and following your own way is death and destruction, because I love you, what am I going to keep doing? Reminding you of who Jesus is and that you can trust him. And you ought to do that for each other, right? You ought to do that for each other, remind each other. And then he went into the idea that said, And in order to remember all this and remind each other, you need to make sure that you are extracting your truth from where? From God's truth. And God's truth is right here in the scripture. Trust the scripture, dig into it. And remember, Peter even said, I trust this more than the very things I've seen myself. So trust the old, the new, the whole, and be in it and be intimately connected to it so that the spirit of God might use his words to transform you and remind you of who Jesus is, who you are in Christ and to trust him so that you can remind each other so that you as a community would live effective, fruitful lives full of life and freedom and not ineffective, unfruitful lives full of death and bondage. Whoa. And then Peter said, now there will be those among you who actively choose to teach falsely and actively choose to live out falsely and say they're living godly and teaching godly, but they're not. False teachers. And he goes into that because in the settings of those churches, there were in fact false teachers. And guess what? In the world we live in, we in fact still have false teachers and people that are in it for themselves, that are extracting well-being with their talents and gifts and realities by tickling the ears with what they believe people want to hear to keep all those things. False teachers, I'm doing this so that I can have the uh, notoriety, the affirmation, the resources that come. And so I am bent by what the people need to or want to hear, not bent by what God is telling me because I don't want to cause 
less resource or less affirmation to come. That set of people is the specific set he's dealing with here. But in general, he's also talking about the idea, anyone who chooses their way over God's way, let's talk about that. So he talks about false teachers. Directly in light of trust God's truth, to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, to remember to trust him because he is life and freedom and your way is death and destruction. It's it's a big deal. And then Peter here at that juncture says, let's talk about some stories from the Old Testament to demonstrate to you something important. And here's what he's demonstrating through these stories. Remember he talked about a story we talked two weeks ago about uh, the angels that came down and hung out with some of the humans. And then the angels hung out with some of the human ladies and then they had kids and they were giants and that wasn't good. And you're like, what? I missed two weeks ago, go podcast it. It's as weird as it sounds. And then you'll understand. So he tells this weird story about the Nephilim and the angels out of Genesis six. And then, and then this story that we're getting into today, he talks about the flood. The flood, a story where God, our loving, kind and gentle father looked at the human race and wiped them out. Yeah, our culture loves that one. You love that one. No, I don't. I don't talk about that one. God was a little mad. And so he just drowned everyone except for one guy and a couple of his sons. That doesn't sound like a loving God to me. So this is a weird story, right? It's a big one. It's one we kind of, uh, we kind of dart around and tickle around because I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do with that one. And then God's going to talk about another wonderful one about Sodom and Gomorrah next. That's next week where he takes two cities where the people are not behaving really well and he burns them like ball of <laughs> destroyed. Man, God is love. You understand what I'm saying? Like, that's why we're dealing with these one at a time. Because in our cultural context, we're like, what do they mean? It's terrible. We shouldn't talk about it. But they are not what you think. And what is happening is not what you think. And that's why we're going to deal with them. And what Peter's really doing here is he's showing us something extraordinary in the sequence of these threes. He starts one with one that deals with the cosmos. What is God talking about? There's angels. This is beyond our world. It it deals with the cosmos. And is God sovereign over the cosmos? Is he aware of all in the cosmos? Is he judge over all in the cosmos? Does he have mercy for the cosmos? Yes. You're almost like, I I don't don't know. (laughs) He's holding it together, isn't he? And the cosmos is affected by sin, is it not? Is he merciful toward the cosmos? But he is the king of kings over the cosmos. That's why he started with, remember the angels? They didn't get away with it. And then he's like, is he sovereign over the globe, the totality of humankind, the big picture, all of the countries, nations, cities, and people? Yes. So he talks about, remember when the whole earth in ancient days was wicked and what did God do? Was he sovereign over the whole? Yes. Did he see the whole? Did he let the whole get away with sin doing its destructive thing? No, he was judge over the whole. And then he deals with two cities. Did he, is it, is it just a God of big picture or is he aware of what's going on in your city, in your house, in your heart? So what Peter's doing here is he's saying, pick the cosmos, pick the globe, pick the city. God is sovereign. Pick the cosmos, pick the globe, pick the city, God is judge. Pick the cosmos, pick the globe, pick the city, God is king. 
God is merciful. God is involved. You do not get to live a life that hides from the principles of God or hides from the justice of God or hides from the mercy of God. You don't. So that's why he picked these three stories. But each story in of itself to understand how it helps us understand God's justice and God's mercy one at a time, we must understand the stories as they are and not as we have typically understood them. So let's get into the story that we are going to get into today. So in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 4, that's when he said, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That was the one from two weeks ago. Go podcast. Then if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, so there's all the stuff our culture doesn't like, and we don't really like either. You know, you remember when God saw the world and they were what? Ungodly. And then he wiped them out and he rescued little righteous Noah. He was nice. So the moral of the story, be nice and righteous. Otherwise you're going to get drowned. Like, I mean, so so our, our experience of this is very much in that uh, sort of space of a God, kind of a little bit ancient Greek, ancient Roman type of space, right? Uh, God is up there. He, like us, is discovering things as they unfold. Uh, the human race uh, behaves very badly. Uh, he's a little ticked about it. Uh, he re- regrets the whole thing. And so he's like, I'm going to take them all out. And then he finds this one nice guy, Noah, and he's like, I'll spare you. And then he, we, and he puts the boat together, wipes out the human race and saves Noah. And we're like, oh, thank you, God. But man, wow. But that is not the story that Genesis describes at all, not its intent. Whenever we are in the Old Testament, remember that there are a couple of things unfolding constantly in the Old Testament that you should be aware of, that the people who would have read Peter's letter were acutely aware of. In the very beginning of the Old Testament, when Adam and Eve choose their own way, they choose to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil because the enemy of God told them, you don't need God. He is lording over you. If you eat of this fruit, you will know what he knows. You will be like him. You can be your own gods. They bought into the idea that if they were to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they could be their own lords. And God had said to them, that is not how it goes. I am life. I am freedom. Absence from me is what? What is the absence of life? What is the absence of light? What is the absence of freedom? Bondage. Bondage. That's right. So if I'm absent, since I am life and I am freedom and I am light, if I'm absent, you don't get to generate light, life and freedom all by yourself. You are the absence of God is the presence of darkness, death, and destruction, and bondage. And so Adam and Eve found that out real quick because when they ate of the fruit, uh, the way that the Bible describes it so that we can understand it in terms that we experience is it, it, it describes a thing coming in called sin, like a virus. It actually describes sin very much like a virus. You know, when a virus comes into your body, if your immune system does not engage or uh, if you do not get outside help from other realities that help overcome the virus, what does every virus do? Kills. No virus in your body left to itself is going to be like, I'm going to preserve this guy. Its entire bent is to grow until you die. Thank you, immune system. 
Thank you, help from the outside when immune system isn't enough so that we can kill the virus so we don't die. Sin is like a virus. It comes into creation. It begins its work. And what is its end always every time? Death. That's it. And so we see the story begin to unfold. Uh, with Adam and Eve, sin comes in and now death is there. There is an absence, a break from God. God is life. God is freedom. God is light. So now suddenly they are experiencing for the first time what? A certain level of darkness, a certain level of death, a certain level of bondage. And there is shame and there is fear and there is, there is anxiety. All those things come and God walks into that. He does not desert and he says, I am going to rescue mankind from this terrible virus. And then five chapters later, so uh, I, I love this, what we're about to read isn't here. Okay? It's not like, oh, we did pretty well. We did pretty well. And then it kind of went bad. No, no, it goes like this. We did pretty well. And then it went bad. <laughs> you go, wow, what are you talking about? Genesis chapter six. Let's see. I'm just going to, uh, there's an introduction to the Bible. That's not even part of it. Here's Genesis one. There's Genesis six. Okay, here we go. Listen to this. So the, the outward expression of what happened to Adam and Eve is, is this. Genesis chapter six, verses, by the way, one through four is about the Nephilim and the angels. So we're right there. He's just said, first of all, the cosmos went badly. <laughs> and that's not good. But let's talk about this world. How did this world do in the midst of the cosmos? Uh, chapter six of Genesis, verse five. The Lord, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Okay, so we know it was bad, okay? How bad do you say? Good question. Let's read on. And that the and that every intention, wait for it, of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. I read the sentence as it stands. I didn't make any of those words up. It's right there. So let's, let's just see. It's, it's like the author of Genesis is trying to cover every base. Let's see if there's one crevice in mankind that had an ounce of good to it, a momentary lapse in their thinking evil that gave them a good thought for a second. Oh, I like you. And he's like, no, no. Every intention, that would be one thing, of the thoughts, so not even the intentions, the intentions of the thoughts of the heart was only evil when? All the time. That's the context we should start with. The wickedness of man was that every person was that at that time, that quickly after creation. Cain and Abel happened, and shortly after that, humankind is here, and this is what we've got. What happens when every one of you and I are bent wholeheartedly on our own way and mine, 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 and I am hostile toward you. What is the inevitable end of that? Death. I will kill you. Just give me a second. Because I know if I don't kill you, you will what? Kill me. I want what I want. I either want you dead or I want you enslaved. I want to lord over every single one of you and I want you either to be my slave or to be dead. And you want the same for me. Sounds like fun. What happens to uh, people that that is true of them? What is the inevitable end of a people that that is true? Total annihilation. 
we will keep self-destructing until there's nothing left. So all God had to do at this juncture, considering that sentence, is to remove himself from the picture. And when he removes himself from the picture, what occurs is that life, light, and freedom is gone. And all that's left is that sentence. And the inevitable end, given enough time, would be our total annihilation. God did not move on us as a punishment for doing wrong. He declares us so gone that we are dead. Then something fascinating happens. The way it's written here seems now to get odd. This is where we get our Greek God ideas from because it speaks in language that we can connect to. And it says in verse six, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we read that forgetting the context of the Old Testament and its purpose. And we read it like a God who didn't know this was going to happen, saw it happen, got all bent out of shape, was regretful, wanted to wipe everybody out, found Noah. Noah said, I'm a nice guy. And he said, I found you. I'm going to save you. God made a promise to Adam and Eve that he was going to defeat sin. Do you think that three chapters later, he was getting ready to break that promise? Is, is this the God you read about in, in the scriptures? I read about a God who is uh, the first and the last, who does not live inside time, who knows the end before the beginning. I, 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 don't, I don't read about a God in the scripture that is discovering the story as we are and going, oh no, it went badly, I regret it. So why write it like this? I'll tell you exactly why. Because the entirety of the Old Testament is a constant ongoing story of what God is going to do for us that we are not capable of doing for ourselves. It is every story in the Old Testament in some way. And God makes these statements so that when we get the real story, we'll go, it's kind of like that. And what is the big story? That our God, despite the totality of the wickedness of mankind, because sin has enslaved us and therefore we are now slaves to sin, enemies of God, people of wrath. That's all in the New Testament, right? What, is, what does Romans say? While we were still God's what? Enemies, he died for us. So what God is showing us in the Old Testament is that mankind has been and always will be after the fall of Adam and Eve, what? Wicked wicked, self-destructive, always bent on evil. And what should happen because we're like that? We should be destroyed. How? By God just removing himself, saying, that's it. You're, you, you want a world without me? You want a world without life? You want a world without freedom? You want a world without light? Do you know what that world is? It is a world of death. It is a world of darkness. It is a world of bondage. If that's what you want, it's all yours. And just remove himself from the picture and it will all go south. And here's what God's saying in Genesis chapter six. Here's what the author is saying. What should God have done? He should have looked at this and said, I regret this. This is crazy. You're on your own. But what does it say? God what? Found Noah and there was favor. 
This is the story that God tells through Noah. It's the story that God tells through Abraham. It's the story that God tells through Moses. It's the story that God tells through David and numerous others. When the entirety of the human race is wicked and I should wipe them all out, give me one righteous person and I will save them all through that person. Let me say that again. When the entire human race, the entire human race is wicked and deserving of destruction, give me how many? One righteous person and I will have mercy on them all. Does that sound like a story we're aware of? Was there one righteous king who came? One righteous king through whom all have the opportunity to be saved? One righteous king who has become our righteousness and taken on our sin? Yes, how many? One, was it Noah? No, no David? No. no, Abraham? No, Moses? No, they were just stories of what it's going to be like. Uh, Noah wasn't righteous in the way we think about it because after the whole Noah incident, what happened? Was sin still around in the human race? Yep, turned out it was in Noah and his boys. Abraham wasn't righteous. You should read about him. David wasn't righteous. Oh, golly. None of them were righteous. But God did say, this is how my story works. When I should depart, I won't. I will find one righteous and then I will have mercy on all. Except that how many righteous humans exist? Zero. So my plan is bigger than you think. I will not find that human. So I will become flesh and dwell among you and become righteousness for you. And then I will save you all through me. Every story is about the gospel. And it is not about destruction. It's about preservation. The story of the flood is not about destroying the human race. It is about God demonstrating once again to us what happens when his absence is even relatively felt. When God created, watch this now, this is crazy. When God created in Genesis chapter one, it says that at the beginning of creation, everything was void, right? Darkness. And then what happened? God enters the picture, the spirit hovers, and suddenly something appears in life. Life and light become, becomes, and he says, and, and he spoke, and what was the first thing he said? Essentially, it says, let there be light, which is what he said, but it's the same as saying, I'm here. Did you catch that? You're like, what do you mean? God is what? Light. And when God shows up, what, what happens? Darkness is no more and light is. So when God shows up and he goes, I'm here, he may as well say, let there be light. So he shows up and light starts, let there be light. And then he separates the waters of the earth into sky and earth. So in, in our little creation story, he goes, the first part of my creating is to separate the waters and then from there begin to create. Now this is gonna get crazy. Bear with me for a second, because this is part of what Peter's trying to show us in the beauty and power and sovereignty of God. In the book of Colossians, Paul writes, and he writes about Christ, and he says, he is the image of the invisible God. Through him, everything was made. It was made through him, by him, and for him. And then he says something fascinating. He says, and he holds, present tense, how much together? All things together. That's a present tense word. Not he held, not he will hold, he presently, currently holds how much together? Everything. There is only one self-existence and that is God himself. Every other part of existence is wholly dependent on the constant unrelenting holding together of God. 
So if God removes himself from creation, what happens to creation? It implodes, it stops, it ceases. It cannot sustain on its own. You think God rolled in, set up the sky and the sea, and then he can leave and the sky and the sea just goes, oh, well, we'll do it. The second God begins to depart, creation begins to deconstruct. It begins to decreate. Creation cannot self-sustain. And the story of the flood is this beautiful picture in the Old Testament that the people of the Old Testament would have understood because they understood the creation story. And the people of Peter's time would have understood that in the departure of God's presence, the world comes apart. And we what? We die. You see, if God departed, it's not that we would be left to ourselves and over a period of time quietly self-destruct. If God departs, you'd cease. If God departs, creation ceases. And what Peter is trying to show us here in this is this. You need to realize, people, as Peter writes to the churches, that God is sovereign over the cosmos, sovereign over the globe, sovereign over the city, sovereign over you. And when you trust him and you follow him, is he able and capable of rescuing you from both your own wickedness and the wickedness of those around you? Yes, how do we know? He rescued the unrighteous Noah. And he rescued the unrighteous Abraham. And he rescued the unrighteous Lot. That's for next week. It's weirder than them all. And he rescued the unrighteous David. And he rescued the unrighteous, keep going, from wickedness. Is he capable of rescuing you and me day to day? Yes. And... Is he going to stand for wickedness and leave it and let it be? No. If you choose and I choose to do it my way and to ignore trusting God, though our lives eternally will be preserved because what has God gifted us with now? He said, my spirit lives where? In you if you know Jesus and it will depart when? Never. But if you're gonna live opposed to my way, Sin always brings about a version of death and destruction, darkness and bondage. If that's what you would like in your temporal life here, please feel free to choose your own way. If you'd rather have life and freedom, trust me, follow me. That's what Peter's trying to say. And he's saying, listen, the absence of God, the disconnection from God is the presence of a version of death, a version of bondage, a version of darkness. So what should we try to do? Stay as close to God as possible. Isn't that funny how the New Testament actually says that? Abide with him, stay close to him, be connected to him. Anytime we begin to disconnect ourselves from the realities of who God is and what he has said we should do, we begin to walk into a space where the inevitable outcome of that disconnect is going to be some version of the presence of death, destruction, bondage, or darkness. And the reason Paul is saying this here is because the reason we all, let's just be honest here for a second, roll with me for a second. You do not choose to do things in opposed to God because you think it'll be fun to die. Have any of you ever said, I'm gonna choose to do the opposite of what God wants because I know it's gonna be terrible, horrible and lead to my total destruction, including the destruction of all the people I love. Yes! No, 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 we choose our way because we believe our way will lead to better things than God's way. We always do. You never choose it because you think it's gonna be terrible. You choose it because you think it's gonna be good. The false teachers who were teaching during this time, were they doing well? Yes, yes they were. Were they, were they gaining resources because they were teaching? 
Yes. Did they enjoy those resources? Yes. Were they gaining affirmation and fame? Yes. Were they suffering at all because of being these false teachers? No, they were doing super well. And some of the people following Jesus doing it God's way, how are they doing? Not so well a lot of the time. Not all the time. It's not like an equation, follow Jesus, do crappy. Follow the world, do really well. It's that sometimes we look at the world and we're like, if I make the choice that is not God's way, it'll go better for me. You know this. In our business endeavors, we often sit with the choice and we're like, here's God's way, but if I don't fudge the numbers, I don't get the contract. If I don't get the contract, I don't, it's going to be better if I don't trust God's way and trust mine. And when you do it and you get the contract and the money comes rolling in, does it feel like it went better? You're like, no. Yes, it does. Let's be honest. It's like, yeah. And then sometimes we choose to do it God's way. We don't fudge the numbers and we don't get the contract and we don't get the resources and we have to struggle because we don't have enough income. And then we look to our neighbor who's in our same office and they fudge the numbers and they drive out in the new car and they're like, we're going on vacation, have fun. And you're there with your eight kids because you trusted God and you're like, what have I done? Peter is, is not naive to the fact that often following God's way doesn't lead to what is seemingly in the immediacy or even what we feel like long-term is best. And doing it our way often feels like it goes better. But what Peter's trying to say to us is, that's not actually how it works. It just feels like it briefly. But when you do it God's way and it doesn't go well because you've chosen to put someone else's needs ahead of your own or you've chosen to be honest instead of deceptive or you've chosen uh, to, to live out on mission in some way and it's created discomfort or you've chosen to release resources instead of holding on to them. all these things we choose that make no sense. And then it doesn't go so well and you pay a price for it. Here's what he's saying. Is the sovereign God capable and able and will rescue all of those who follow him and bring life, light, and freedom to them? Yes. Yes. Over the cosmos, the globe, your city, your house, you? Yes. And those of us that think, I got away with it. God said it wouldn't go well. So much for that idea. Here's what he's saying. Keep having fun while you can. The justice of God may feel slow, but it's never slow and it's coming. And you do not want to wake up one day and go, oh, I was the creator of more death, bondage and darkness to myself and those I love. I just didn't know it. Well, yes, you did. If you just read this. And that's what Peter's trying to say. Folks, here it is. In simple terms, here it is. When we choose to trust God and his way, we are not choosing what is right, though we are. It is right. We are choosing what is life, what is freedom. And when we choose to oppose God's way, we are not choosing what is wrong and therefore soliciting the disappointment or punishment of God. We are choosing what is death, what is bondage, because sin, the opposing of God, is always death and bondage. So the next time you're seeing two ways, your way and God's way, and they seem like they're not aligned, don't think of it as, I should choose the right way. Because then God will be happy and won't curse me. Think of it this way. The absence of God is the presence of death. The presence of God is the presence of life. I have God, 
because the spirit of God lives in me and I'm a follower of Jesus. And as Peter said, if I just remember who Jesus is, just remember who I am in Jesus and just trust him and do it his way instead of mine, is he perfectly capable of rescuing you from whatever weight you might have to carry for choosing his way? And will that rescue lead to life and freedom? Yes. Choose life. Choose life is what Peter's trying to say. Choose life. And I will spend the rest of my life trying to remind you of who is life and who is life. All hail King Jesus, who is the only righteous king, the only life, the only light, and the only freedom. And every time we choose him in his way, we will know light, life, and freedom as its eventual end. And every time we don't, we will know death, bondage, and destruction as its eventual end. And his greatest mercy of all, which is what all these stories are about, is the preservation of your soul despite your idiocy. And the preservation of my soul despite my idiocy. Where day to day I will choose him sometimes and I will choose my own way sometimes. And yet he does not remove my eternal life every time I choose my way and give it back to me every time I choose his. That is his gift to me that he holds and he keeps. In the meantime, choose life every day instead of death by choosing his way instead of yours. That's what Peter's trying to say. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for um, your ongoing extraordinary mercy where from Genesis onward, you should have left Adam and Eve and had the, the whole of creation just implode, but you didn't. You should have left Cain and Abel and have the whole creation implode, but you didn't. You should have left humanity in their totality of wickedness, but you didn't. You should have left us after Abraham, but you didn't. After Moses, but you didn't. After David, but you didn't. The entire time, you were just declaring over and over and over again, I will save and preserve the story of humanity through one righteous person, even though every other is wicked. And to hear that written by Paul, where you said, though all were my enemies. I became their righteousness and died for them. What a thing it is that you have all along been staying with us, preserving us despite every reason not to. Thank you. Thank you. Help us to see you, to know you, to trust you, to obey you, to stay close to you, not simply because it's right, but because we now know it's life and it's freedom. And when we feel weighty because we've made choices that you've asked us to make, remind us that you are the rescuer. And when we make choices that are foolish and do it our way, and we face the consequences of that, and some death and some bondage shows up, remind us that you are merciful. That you never let sin and never let injustice and never let wickedness continue. But you always bring judgment to it so that it might be undone and we might be free. So God, come. 
Come rescue. Come discipline. Come shape. Come, come transform. Come reveal. Come do your thing so that we might be free. In Jesus' name we pray.